title of this morning's message is Answering the Jewish Objector Through Scripture. Now, if you're just joining us, this is the 10th installment of Romans chapter 9, and we are finishing it today. There are quite a few verses. The 10th installment, which means that, yeah, you've got nine to catch up on. Now, I've been ringing through my brain how to approach this last message, because I'm going to promise I will finish it. I will finish it, and we'll be on to chapter 10 next week. But this is ultimately what these verses are talking about, what Paul's, or how Paul is concluding his chapter. It's by answering the Jewish objector. Do you remember who the Jewish objector is? Like, what's the actual objection? Verse 6 says it all. Verse 6 is actually the answer for Romans 9, 10, and 11. If you've been joining us, you should know that that's the reason Paul has written these three chapters, because the natural flow from chapter 8 goes on to chapter 12. Chapter 12 is the practical. From 1 to 8, if you look through all of Romans, he's just telling us all about salvation and why it's needed from the start and what it actually means and who provides it. Everything about salvation that we need to know is found from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 8. And so the logical flow from that is how do we put that knowledge into practice? And that's where Romans chapter 12 comes in. But here we have three chapters, 9, 10, 11, that talks about something completely different. Not something completely different, actually, I will say. More about the background that addresses the Jewish audience. And that's the objection. Has or has not God's word failed? Hasn't his promises failed or being fulfilled in that you bring about the Messiah through us, but the majority of your people, God, don't believe in the Messiah? So surely God has failed in fulfilling his promises to Israel. None of your people believe. Hardly any. Only a small amount. It's failed. Surely. That's the objection. That's the Jewish objector. And the best way to, not argue, but reason, the best way to reason with a Jew is through Scripture. Because that's what they're familiar with. I think even today, if you are friends with a Jew and they refuse to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the best approach you can take is through Scripture. Not the, not the New Testament, by the way. The Old Testament. But use the New Testament to show that's what the Old Testament is talking about. And that's a lesson for all of us. When you read the Old Testament and we don't understand what in the world, God, why would you do that? We ask the question, what kind of God would do that? Well, refer it, your reasoning always to Jesus and the New Testament. So, the objection. Let's get into why Paul, the, the scriptures use, Paul uses, 
And, and it's interesting, I've found actually these, these uh, last few verses the most complex on trying to understand the passage. I haven't had any trouble from Romans 9. And I, I want to applaud you, by the way, if you've stuck with me the whole way and you're on track, you understand everything, then you're doing pretty good. Because not many, not many Christians can read this passage and fully understand it. Fully understand it to the point where you understand a Calvinistic interpretation and then you understand the non-Calvinistic interpretation. Now last week I decided to go through a Calvinistic interpretation of Romans chapter 9 and then I brought out the inconsistencies of that um, interpretation. And I've been wondering, now should I just do a recap of the non-Calvinistic interpretation? That's just been going through my head all week. And eventually I decided not to. I said, if you really want to know, just go online whether it's to the website or to Spotify, any podcast, and listen to the messages if you really want to know. But I'll say it once more. I believe Calvinism is false. I believe Arminianism is false. And if you're familiar with those two terms and you're wondering, hmm, aren't there only two options when we look at soteriology, the, the, the study of salvation? I said, no, there's actually a third. And it's, I, I class it as neither Calvinistic or Arminian. And it's called provisionism. Provisionism is usually attacked as being Arminian and obviously attacked by the Calvinists. But provisionism, if you have never heard of it, I highly suggest you Google it, YouTube it, whatever. A particular teacher will come up by the name of Dr. Leighton Flowers and... Um, if you pretty much want to go deeper into fully understanding what all these doctrines mean, then I, that's the guy I suggest you, you listen to. But um, provisionism answers all my questions. That's plainly put. That's why I believe in it. It answers all my questions that I've had in the last 10 years when it comes to, and more, when it comes to um, this, this doctrine of of Calvinism and Arminianism. It's something that I said on Wednesday night should have never been invented. I think these scholars have got off track with when it comes to um, what it means that God chooses us and we choose God. But this passage that Paul brings up is in Hosea. Now straight away, I've read this time and time again and before my deep study into this, I've automatically, if you look at verse 24, Paul brings up Gentiles for the first time. Correct? Even us, whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And so I automatically relate verse 25 and 26 to them speaking of the Gentiles. It's, 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 a, it's a logical thought, right? As he says also into Hosea, I will call those who are not my people my people, and who was not my beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in a place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Surely he's talking about Gentiles there. And a lot of preachers preach that 
this is talking about Gentiles. And I say, not so fast. Someone could argue that when you look at Hosea, Hosea is not talking about Gentiles when he says, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And what I'm about to say now might mess you up, as in it might get you confused. So don't think too much of it. There are times when the Jews were not God's people. And there are times when they were. We say that they're God's people. But throughout the Old Testament, it wasn't always the case. When there are times of rebellion, it's like he disbanded them. And so Hosea, every scholar agrees, is referencing Jews. And so it's dangerous to say that, oh, Paul's talking about Gentiles here. Usually someone who brings that up is a Jew who's arguing against a Jew who has been saved, who's found Jesus, like a Jew for Jesus. Because lots of people automatically say, oh yeah, Paul's talking about Gentiles here. But if Paul wanted to do that, I'm sure what he would have done is actually referenced a prophecy that Gentiles were actually going to be saved in the Old Testament. For instance, this, just one, this is just one of many examples. Surely he would have said, oh, as Isaiah, Isaiah in 49 verse 6, I will also make you a light, you as the Jews, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, or for the nations, your, your version might say, that my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. That's more logical. But Paul does an interesting thing here. He doesn't exactly reference a direct correlation with that of the Gentiles in the Old Testament. He still references Hosea when it comes to, I will call my people, my people. So what I think Paul was doing, is to put it plainly, is asking the Jews, could it be possible that God does to the Gentiles the same thing as he did to the Jews? Where he's calling my people someone who wasn't actually his people. If he did it for the Jews, well, why can't he do it for the Gentiles? Why can't he do it for anyone? I think this kind of reasoning is more strategic in Paul's eyes when he's addressing the Jewish objector. Because that's my question. Why doesn't he just reference an Old Testament scripture that plainly says... God's going to call Gentiles into salvation. Why doesn't he do that? And so I think this is, this is more, I guess, more on a, on, a, on a level playing field with them, trying to get inside their minds of what he believes will get them to, to realize it. Now, he also mentions Isaiah, um, uh, Isaiah 10, verses 22 and 23. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Through the, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. So when we see remnant, we know what a remnant is, right? It's just a, a, a minuscule amount, a small amount. It's a remnant. Um, for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And by the way, um, your version might say something completely different. 
I think that's the most simplest. Uh, it took me ages to try to figure out, um, reading all these commentaries, what in the world is he talking about? For instance, in my King James Bible, um, you know, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. Wow, that confounded me quite a lot, puzzled me quite a lot. Um, here, looking at what these actual phrases mean, I can accurately say that this is a, a decent translation. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. A more, a more plain English kind of thing of what Paul is trying to say. He's just going to do it quickly. Whatever the, the, the purposes that he's fulfilling, he's going to do it quickly. He's going to execute them, accomplish them um, thoroughly and, and, and right on point. But the main conclusion that Paul is drawing out that I believe is, is the sand of the sea versus the remnant that's going to be saved. In Isaiah, we could say that this is a prophecy, something that's going to happen. Yeah? So... All the Jews would agree that there are, and there always was, tons of them. Millions. Innumerable. Incannibal ones, if that's a word. They're like the sand of the sea. Just like the, descent, um, the, the children of Abraham are like the stars in the sky. Yeah? So, even though Paul, um, or Isaiah, rather, says... There are tons of God's um, children in, in the nation of Israel. Descendants of Abraham is another term you could say. Only a remnant that will be saved. So why is he bringing this up? Why is he bringing up? Well, if, this, if you're new today then you, you, um, and you've never heard of Romans 9, then you, you won't remember or understand that in a Jewish mind, um, oh, I'll just give the verse. Um, go back to um, verse um, 7. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. In other words, just because you are a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean that you are automatically a child of of the promise, or a child of God, or what we're about to read, the sons, oh, what we did read, the sons of the living God, the children of the living God. Just because you are a descendant of Abraham doesn't automatically make you one. So in the Jewish, throughout the time, that was automatic to them. Just because I am a Jew, just because I am a descendant of Abraham, automatically makes me go to heaven. Automatically makes, gives me a ticket automatically makes me a child of God. Because, why? Well, because I'm special. I'm a Jew. I'm one of God's elect. Regardless of what I do, by the way. Just because of my ethnicity. Just because of how I was brought up. Who I'm a part of. My family. My lineage. Therefore, why would... Okay? This is the, 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 the question, again, that a Jew is asking... Why would I believe in Jesus? So Paul, a former Jew, is telling his fellow Jews, hey guys, Jesus is the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for. How many times in the Old Testament was, 
was it prophesied that a Messiah will come to save them? Many. But the point is, why would I believe in Jesus as the Messiah when so many of my fellow Jews reject him? Why would I do that? And Paul brings up this prophecy. Well, only a remnant are going to be saved anyway. Only a small amount. Isaiah says, how many years before this? A thousand or so? Isaiah prophesies. Even though you guys are innumerable, only a small amount will believe in the Messiah. He's going back to their text and saying, hey, God said this actually from the start. You shouldn't be surprised by it. So that's, that's why you should believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Don't, don't rely on all your fellow peers to, just because the majority of them believe doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. Which is, though, quite prevalent in our society, is it not? If the majority of people believe it, usually we go along with it. Depending on what it is, of course. Mostly in our younger days as well when we're impressionable and, and, and believe everything that, that we hear, but it's, it's a cultural thing. Then he references a couple more. Isaiah 10, 22 to 23, he, he references. Um, and just as Isaiah again foretold, the same, the same prophet, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left, or, or the, the Lord of hosts, by the way, the, we, we know that term, the, the King of Kings, the Lord of you know, everything, who left to us a posterity. In your version, it might say seed, who left to us a seed. We would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Now, a lot of people that are here say, oh yeah, obviously, this posterity or this seed is talking about Jesus Christ. But I actually don't think it is. I actually, I think it's talking about the remnant that we know about, the few that actually did believe, the people like Paul, the people like Peter, the people like the disciples who were, that were Jews formerly and became Christian. Um, even Gamaliel. Gamaliel, if you've never heard of that man, he was actually Paul's rabbi, his teacher. And I was just, I was just researching this week, did he actually become a Christian? And it's actually not in the Bible, but church traditions, um, the writings of um, historians um, believe that he was, even though, it, as they say, it can either, it can't be confirmed, it can neither be confirmed or denied. But this is the point. Did God use Gamaliel, for instance, to bring about God's promises of Messiah coming out in the world? No, he doesn't use every single Jew. And that's mainly what the non-Calvinistic interpretation of Romans 9 is. That's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, hey, you have a problem with most of Israel not even believing in the Messiah that was prophesied only to you guys. God's words obviously failed. And said, no, it hasn't. Because God doesn't use everyone 
to carry out his promises. Let alone, God doesn't save everyone just because you are a descendant. You have, we're going to about find out you have to have faith. It's got nothing to do with the works that you have. Gamaliel wasn't used to bring about that promise, but Paul was. Peter was, but many of them weren't. And they'll still stay it. So if that remnant didn't exist, if no one believed, then what would have happened? Well, that would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, and we all know what happened to that city, right? What shall we say then? Paul's final thoughts. What shall we say then? This, to me, sums up the whole reason for Romans chapter 9, 10 and 11. This is ultimately, in plain English, for us, the answer to Paul's Jewish objector. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? They didn't pursue it, but they have righteousness. But Israel, they pursued the law of righteousness. They pursued actual righteousness of God. But they haven't attained it. They haven't attained God's righteousness. The Gentiles did. They didn't even pursue it. Israel's been pursuing it for years and years, but they haven't. Remember, some did. But in a general consensus, majority did not. Why not? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over the rock, the chief cornerstone. And that's a reference to Isaiah 8.14, how it's a prophecy where Isaiah is saying they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then in chapter 28, of, in verse 16, he actually does an actual reference. I actually don't know why um, um, most versions don't reference this as a, an actual Old Testament prophecy. But here he does, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. That's a direct quote from Isaiah 28.16. And this disappointed might be, it actually means fearful, but, um, but uh, my version, again, um, for example, it says ashamed, won't be ashamed. Notice he believes in him. So, how can we be sure Isaiah, or Isaiah, is talking about Jesus as a stumbling stone? How can we know for sure that that stumbling stone, that rock of offense, is Jesus Christ? It's prophesied that people are going to stumble over him, but people who believe in him won't be stumbled. How can we know that's Jesus Christ? Well, 1 Peter 2.8 is one of many places. A stone. If you read 1 Peter 2 this week, you'll find the exact quote Peter uses. The exact reference. He's a stone that causes people to stumble. 
And we know Peter is talking about Jesus Christ when we see the preceding verses. And a rock that makes them fall. Now, Peter gives the logical conclusion into why this rock or this stone is a stumbling one. It's because, well, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. You could say they stumbled because they did not believe. If you reread Isaiah 28, which is kind of a give me, isn't it? Uh, it's like a duh moment. It's, it was a stumbling block. But only for those who disobeyed the message, who didn't believe the message. So the question for us today, because well, that's good, that's good and fine. Doesn't really, or I don't really care. It's just these, okay, they're, they're Jewish objectors. But for us, we're Gentiles. We've, we're able to attain righteousness without being righteous. This is the crux of the message. This is the application for us. This is the question that you need to answer. Are you right with God? Have you attained righteousness with God? That's the question. Are you right with God? This is the same question which we should be asking out there. Are you right with God? And boy, the different responses that we're being taught about, that we're hearing, not many people can say yes. Another way of saying it is, do you know for sure that you're going to go to heaven when you die? Are you right with God? This is a simple question that we can just go and ask anyone. Are you right with God? Do you have Christ's righteousness credited to you? If you don't, well, we know the answer is only Jesus can provide that righteousness. Only Jesus can make you right with God. But for the majority of this in this room, since I don't know all of you, I'm not going to assume that everyone is right with God in this room. But if you are right with God, then what's the application for us? Live like you're right with God. Live like it. And then when those times come, when we are doubting whether we're right with God, well, how many times has that happened? How many times are we being told by even the church? Because anyone can have a, a platform these days, thanks to technology. How many times are we being told, no, you have to do this to be right with God. You actually have to be baptized to be right with God. You actually have to tithe to be right with God. You actually have to worship on this particular day to be right with God. You have to do this and that and that. Make sure you, no, only if you read your Bible every day will you be right with God. If you miss a day, you won't be right with God. You have to attend every single church service, every single Bible study. Only then will you be right with God. And God will treat you differently if you're not. That's not the gospel. That's the exact same thing that the church is doing just as the Jews were doing back in the day. They're trying to earn being right with God. We can't do it. But that should motivate us to live a life like it's true. 
Because that should inspire us to do this. Every follower of Jesus, every Christian has good news to share. And that's the good news. We can be right with God. There is no tricks about it. There's no secret formula. It's just a simple faith that what Jesus Christ did on the cross is enough for you to be right with God. Believing in it is enough. That's all it is. That's the good news. So firstly, let's be vigilant on not adding to it. Not adding to Jesus plus something. And don't have those thoughts come in our minds when, oh, maybe God's... I was just thinking about when we are watching the video of the blind man. Am I blind because of my sins? How many times do we hear, I'm sick because... I'm not right with God. There are millions that believe that. I don't. I put it a nicer way. I don't have enough faith. That's why I'm not right with God. I'm not healed because I'm not right with God. Absolute nonsense. Christ is enough. Hopefully, I've encouraged you to firstly believe it, secondly act like it, and thirdly. Share it. Share it. Because not just, not just non-believers need to hear this. Christians need to hear this, unfortunately. So just because you come across someone and they say they're a Christian, go further than that. Say, oh, that's good. Are you right with God? Well, let's see what their answer is. That's what I encourage you with. And we've done. Romans chapter 9. Probably the deepest passage in all of the Bible, particularly the New Testament. And we survived. I take my hat off to you. Next week, we continue chapter 10. And as usual, any questions, even if you hear something online, you go back to my past messages and you say, hey, Tim, that doesn't make sense. Can you explain that further? I'm always open to having that conversation. It's what I love to do. It's actually what I'm employed to do. So... Let's continue that discussion. Well, let's praise God that he's given us a way to be right with God with no contribution of ourselves other than the simple faith and belief that Jesus Christ does it all. Heavenly Father, thank you for making it simple. And Father, we know how many times we try to make it complicated. We as in human, humankind, humanity, help us just to be on guard against those things, against those people that try to make it more complicated than it is. We thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. We thank you for the power that's in the gospel, as Paul writes in the first chapter of Romans. We just thank you for just really the advantage we have in reading Romans 9, in knowing what your thoughts were throughout the ages of time, throughout the history of making, firstly, the children of Israel your children and then bringing them through that. Father, we just want to thank you that you've made a, a way possible for the Gentiles 
to attain that exact same righteousness. We actually thankful that there's neither Jew nor Greek now in the new covenant or under the new covenant. So we just want to rejoice in that truth and just praise God. We praise you, Lord, that uh, we can be made right with you. Thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.